Hi, welcome to 10 CDs for a Penny, the show where we talk about mild music magazine culture and stuff. I'm Jackson Man. Joining me this week is Noyan Hilmi, and this is the first time we're doing this podcast as a social distancing experiment. We did it on Skype, so it was hard because we couldn't actually pass the magazine back and forth like we usually do and comment on pictures, but we did it digitally as best we could, and I think it worked out pretty well. It's a little different this time because I think we just actually focused on talking about festivals the entire time. This was a festival issue, festival focus with a lot of uh, big artists on the cover, talking about their festival experience but we didn't talk about the magazine that much (laughs) we talked about rage against the machine and their reunion this was the i picked this issue because this was the year that they reunited for coachella in 2007 and in 2020 they were supposed to reunite again this year but things have changed as we all know concerts aren't happening things aren't technically canceled but they are on hold live music is kind of on pause actually it's completely on pause so noyan and i talked a lot about rage against the machine and festivals (laughs) but one story that i didn't get to tell during this episode uh that i want to tell now was my festival experience going to the somersault fest in the summer of 2000 I went with a buddy of mine named Chris from university and the plan was that I would go to his house, which was fairly close to the venue site. Uh, I lived about three and a half hours away from this venue. I would go to his house the night before on a Friday night. And then on Saturday, we'd be about a half an hour or so from the venue. Getting to this venue, there's one giant highway that takes you straight to this venue and it would be just 20,000 cars trying to get into this venue. So we were on the opposite side of that, as I understood. So we could just drive straight to this venue with, you know, fairly little traffic jam. In the morning, Chris tells me that this girl that was supposed to meet up with him and come to the festival with him had to get a train in and we had to go pick her up. And I asked, where do we pick her up? And he said Union Station, which was in downtown Toronto, which is about... I'd say a hundred kilometers away from where this venue was. I did not really know the geography of where we were in Toronto itself at the time. So I was, I think I mentioned, can this girl just take a train closer to where we are right now? These are like the massive transit go trains. This isn't like, you know, Amtrak. This is just the, the, the commuter train around. And I think, this was kind of pre looking this up on the internet. We had no idea how to check train schedules or what. And I think he just arrived at saying, no, we can't without really trying to look up if we could. So we drove to downtown Toronto, which was easily over an hour from where we were staying. And as we're driving, I'm thinking, what the fuck are we doing? We're just getting further and further away. We get to, the furthest away we could possibly get pick this girl up in the core of the biggest city in Canada and then drive back in the worst possible direction to be driving back to this festival because now we're just going to be in the giant traffic jam that we were supposed to avoid so we end up in that traffic jam 
and I was so pissed off and I missed a couple bands because of it. And Chris felt really badly. <laughs> so he ended up buying me a treble charger t-shirt because I missed them. But the rest of the day was awesome. Uh, headliners were Foo Fighters, Our Lady Peace and Smashing Pumpkins. Foo Fighters played third last. I was surprised at this, but it was Our Lady Peace's festival that they put on. And it was also the Smashing Pumpkins last tour. So the Foo Fighters were awesome that day. They, it was just a greatest hit set. Dave Grohl did his typical shtick. He's a great showman. This is actually back when I liked the Foo Fighters. And then Our Lady Peace came on. Was never the biggest Our Lady Peace fan, but you couldn't avoid them if you grew up in Canada in the 90s. So I knew every song. And all of a sudden it turned into this really patriotic kind of set. Everybody was crowd surfing with Canadian flags. I knew the words to every song somehow. I was getting kicked in the head by crowd surfers and having an incredible time. But somewhere in the Foo Fighters set, I ran out of water. And I had not thought that I should just bring a giant knapsack full of water to this festival. We were down in front in a sea of probably about twenty to 30,000 people, I'd say. There was no way that I was going to leave this crowd pre-owning a cell phone or anyone else having a cell phone and ever find my friends again. So I just sat there getting more and more dehydrated, trying to enjoy bands. And by the time the Smashing Pumpkins came on, who I was really excited to see, uh, I was really, really struggling. And joints had been passed by me and I'd taken puffs and it had just gotten me even more dehydrated. There was no water in sight. And I'm just trying to enjoy this band because it's their last tour. And I'm a huge, I'm a big Smashing Pumpkins fan. I really like them. Billy Corgan's an asshole, but I love the Smashing Pumpkins. I was really trying to enjoy this and I was really, really struggling. And I was, you know, trying to rationalize with myself. You just have to get through this. Just enjoy this and then you will eventually get out of this and get some water. Picture being kind of half stoned in a million people and just no way to get water. It's just the biggest nightmare. Finally, the Smashing Pumpkins stop playing and we start walking out and I'd say it's a good 45 minutes before we get through this crowd, exit through a tiny little gate and I find a vendor with water and I think I bought a thousand waters off of him and some ginger ale. Um, <laughs> just looking back going, if I had ever left I would have never, ever seen my friends again. I had no idea where we parked. I would have known nothing. I had absolutely no choice but to sit and wait. But I still enjoyed the show, and I did get water. And hopefully Chris had a great time with his friend because we went about three or four hours out of our way to go and pick her up that day. So bravo. Welcome to the episode. Hope you enjoy First is this uh, this cover. I always love these covers, like in in any respect of like any magazine, where they get all these people together in one spot. And I always, I kind of always think about the logistics of it, like calling everyone's manager and flying people in just to take one picture for a couple hours. <laughs> and this yeah. di this diverse crowd. This is the May two thousand seven Spin magazine, and it's all about festivals. Um, you got Perry Farrell, Davey Havoc, uh, Tom Morello, Jeff Tweedy, Rizza, and Britt Daniel. 
how they got yeah. all these guys together. <laughs> and I'm, actually... I'm actually wondering, were they like, you know, no, they weren't. I was going to say, were they playing like the same show, like before the festival season, but that's not possible. But I think with some of this stuff, you just kind of assume sometimes just like Rolling Stone, like that they're kind of Photoshopping them together to yeah. some degree, like maybe one or two of them or something that couldn't kind of be there. But that's like super lame as well i have um, seen but, sorry i have seen before where someone couldn't make it and they were like they were supposed to be there and then it was actually another issue or another pod we did and one guy just got photoshopped in <laughs> oh really he just couldn't yeah, make it so like his, his 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 flight got canceled or something like that they're like well what are we gonna do so they photoshopped him in and it was like it was the guy from thursday did they really need him there <laughs> was it crucial to yeah. photoshop him in <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, with this one, what's what's weird about this is there's this section about their fashion. So like, I don't know. Like, I was surprised that it kind of you go deeper into the magazine that shows all these guys together and stuff, and then it has that kind of like Vogue cosmopolitan thing where it's like Perry Farrell is wearing yeah. a DKNY cardigan with you know <laughs> like. I don't know, guest jeans or something like that. Like, I can't remember what brands are there, but it, it was, I was like, this is so lame. <laughs> <laughs> but that's been since forever. I mean, I feel like that's how they pay for magazines is just this, this adware that they, that they plug into it. I remember, you know, like in the grunge era, they would do that. They would get some guy from some grunge band and then they put him in a bunch of, $200 flannel shirts and listed underneath. <laughs> right. But I don't know. It's just, I, I, yeah, I realize that this is how, you know, bills are paid and that's how you integrate brands into it. And I, I totally get it. It's just when you take these musicians, they're all so credible. Um, they're all like amazing in their own right. And they're not even, you know, they're not dressed how they would dress like what makes them special is like who they are already it's right. not like going and slapping something else on i just feel like that's like a, a bit weird um, and some of them don't some of them don't look different like brit daniel literally he wears that stuff when he plays shows yeah i look I at like, every one of these guys in these pictures i i kind of feel the same and you know if there's one guy i can justify them doing this for it's barry farrell i mean he's he's a little he's a little fashionista he likes to look yeah. good. He likes to look suave. If there's anyone I can justify them slapping a bunch of designer things on and, and crediting it, it's him. The rest of these guys, like Tom Morello, he's just wearing a black button-up shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I'm just I'm trying to flip through this thing, too, to see, like, what kind of credit that was, like, what's he wearing? You know, this magazine's so big. I, I know. I'll eventually get to it some year. Yeah, we'll get back um, to it. So yeah, uh, Tom Morello is. Oh, I just want to. I just want to read that. Where's uh, Tom Morello? DKNY jeans. He basically said, "I'll wear black jeans." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also love that on the, the cover they really wanted to, note what everybody's current project was. So it's Perry Farrell of Satellite Party. I couldn't even find Satellite Party on Spotify. Like, that's how forgettable that was, whatever that yeah. project was. And yeah. Tom Morello of Night Watchmen and Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. Well, that's, that's like, 
it's weird. I guess it would be weird for them to say Perry Farrell of Jane's Addiction or Porner for Pyros when those bands are defunct and he literally has a new project. Yeah, I right. Know. It's t- or maybe it's tough, it was yeah. like part of their agreement, like, hey, if I'm gonna do this, like, this is you're not going to talk about Jane's Addiction or Porno for Pyros. It's about Satellite Party. Yeah, It's yeah. the promotional tool. It's a publicity thing, right? So, no, no, it makes sense. It so, is funny, though. So this know. is a... Uh, I picked this this issue because it was a festival issue. It was all about promoting the Summerfest in 2007 because of what we're dealing with in the world right now and COVID-19 and the fact that shows and festivals are are i don't they're not going to happen this year i mean they've been postponed but we still don't know if you know we can't see into the future what's happening right now coachella should be happening and it's not i kind of just wanted to talk about festival culture um in this day and age and when it was booming i mean last year but also 2007 (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of it's definitely ebbed and ebbed and flowed you know like it's it's weird especially in toronto i feel like um a few years ago, I think maybe like three or four years ago, there were so many festivals in Toronto that um, the festival promoters um, didn't like it because they had competition. They disliked it because there were no bands for them to buy. I know. So they were having challenges with uh, all the booking agents, like U.S., like the European ones being like, Hey, I need like bands for my lineup. And they're all, Oh, they're already playing in Toronto, like three weeks before or five weeks before. And there's all these like radius clauses and, yeah. you know, stipulations to their contracts and stuff. So they can't obviously play the same area, um, within a certain amount of time. Um, and that's literally the, the following year, uh, I think probably like 40% of them went under, because uh-huh. they all they all basically put each other out of business. Yeah, for sure. You're absolutely right. And I remember that. I mean, obviously, it was only a few years ago, but I was I was really annoyed at that entire situation that every band was just scooped up for the summer by a festival. And if you didn't go to that festival, you weren't going to see them. And there was people on tour that I wanted to see, like promoting records, and they weren't yeah. coming through Toronto unless they were going to the way home festival or something in Barrie. Right. And I wasn't going to, and there was like Pan Am games was happening. The Pan American games were happening in Toronto. And, uh, I think that's what it was called. Honestly, I can't remember, but, um, they had, uh, great bands playing like weekly at Nathan Phillips square. Right. Like I went and saw like the flaming lips and I think, um, Charles Bradley played, I think explosions in the sky, death from above, um, and a whole bunch of international acts that I can't remember and rhyme off, but like that kind of stuff when they're there, there's budget and they can pay for these bands to come in. That's like the year that like uh, Kanye West did like resong set at Rogers center to close the Pan Am games. Oh yeah. I forgot that? about that. Yeah, that's true. I totally forgot. Yeah, it's, about that. it's, it's just, they had, they had this budget and it was basically like scooping up all of these, these acts that all of these other festivals would have gotten um, and like way home was happening and turf was happening and CBC music fest field trip, um, Veld, uh, time, like so many festivals. It was, and I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm only naming a few of them here, but yeah. all these festivals are happening within like a four month span. Every time I look 
I feel like there's way more festivals now than there was before. But uh, classically, when you look back, uh, there is always like just a whole summer full of festivals. I mean, it's all across Canada, the U.S., obviously the U.K., it's all over the world. There's so many festivals and that like, that's, that, that's your summer bread, man. That's your summer tour is bands going on festival tours. Yeah. I'm not someone that has ever been to uh, like Coachella or any of these massive U S um, festivals, uh, you know, Bonnaroo governor's ball. Um, there's just so many of them. I think what happened a bunch of years ago is like maybe even 10 years ago is the, the agents kind of got wise to it and started packaging all of the, um, the artists as being like, they're available now for this festival for, for festivals. And every festival essentially booked almost the same bands. Like there was like a lot of overlap yeah. with bands, which was like, honestly, like I'm not, saying it, but I would feel like for someone that loves to like, kind of like jet set across the country and see these, these amazing bands, um, if Outcast is reuniting and they're literally playing 35 festivals like in the summer, it's 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 not as special, obviously. And that the whole like yeah. each special each festival having its own kind of personality um, kind of gets watered down when like most of them have so many of the same acts. Yeah, like I like those kind of curated festivals that you see that you know like really have a a theme or something like that or. Um... Like all tomorrow's parties sort of would do mm-hmm. that. Like some artists would get to curate and you'd see a real theme of like what they wanted to see and bring it together. But yeah, you're right. For the most part, you see these things going across the country and they're all the same headliners. It's all the same bands playing. So yeah, like it really like takes away the flavor, but I guess it also, you know, like makes sense. But you know, if you're going to a, a, festival like Sasquatch and the West coast. And if you're going to the festival and East coast or whatever, um, that you'd never even get to across the country, you just want to see that giant group of bands. Yeah, it's, it's cool. It's great. And obviously there's going to be different audiences. It's just weird for them to have like us the same lineup when, when these festivals probably started, they kind of started out as having a specific mandate or something like, you know, in the nineties where, Ozfest was all like metal and hard rock or whatever, right? And Lilith Fair, you know, being right. female fronted um, folk or whatever it might be, right? Um, but those like had a niche, and I, I really respect that. Being like, oh, I'm gonna go to, you know, what's that metal one in Montreal or in Quebec? Like oh, that's heavy, like worship. Heavy, heavy fest. Yeah, heavy Montreal, yeah. right? Yeah, like that, that has, the most has all of the best. Lineup. Yeah, most insane lineups ever. Like, if if you're a fan of that that genre, like that's that's for you, right? But I feel like a lot of the festivals, um, like the big U.S. festivals, kind of started taking on the same personality. And and is that is that the mainstream festival? Is that what it has become? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like a lot of them are indie rock bands, and usually mid level success and up. Um, and I know that some of them have like a little bit of their own kind of niche where I think Bonnaroo had a little bit more comedy in it or something, or, right. you know, governor's ball kind of leaned slightly a bit more hip hop, um, with some of their headliners. I don't know. It's just, it's just weird to all be kind of shopping at the same store for their artists. And it's, 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 I agree with you, like a festival, like 
all tomorrow all tomorrow's parties is curated with all of these artists that are generally probably not on a touring cycle right. um and that's kind of what makes it more special as opposed to being like oh um the national is playing uh, i love the national the national is playing a uh, they have a new album coming out. So, you know, they're on literally every festival that's going across the world. Uh-huh. You know what? There was a good point, though, before when you were saying that, like, you know, these things, I don't know. Well, you were saying, like, you know, Bonnaroo, like, had kind of a um, a slant to it. Um, a lot of these festivals, it's right. Like, Bonnaroo, when it first started, uh, when I first heard about it, I remember my cousins in the States went, and they were asking me if I wanted to go. That was probably around like 2002, 2003. And that was like a jam band festival. Now, it wasn't like right. completely like that, but like that was like the fish headliner, string cheese incident, <laughs> ween, like things like that. And then I remember when all of a sudden, a handful of years later, I saw it get announced and yeah, like Pearl Jam and Kanye West were headlining. And I was like, wait, what? What happened to the festival? <laughs> that was exactly, the weirdo exactly. go get high, listen to ween festival. You know, it's very similar to um, just like look at a, like well, a blues fest. So it, it it started off as a blues festival. It was all blues artists and like related genres. And then they want to reach a larger audience. So they start um, incorporating these other genres that are going to attract different fans and audiences. And eventually it just becomes a music festival. It's just a music festival, but it's still called Ottawa's, Ottawa, Blue, Ottawa Blues Fest. Like, yeah. And it's a great festival. But it's it's weird that it's it's not a blues fest, right? And they they water themselves yeah. down by trying to reach more a, a bigger audience. That's essentially what's happened. But blues fest also is that reminds me of uh, what Canadian Music Week does too. Whoever happens to be in town, they just attach that to blues fest. So I remember I was living in Ottawa in like 2001 for blues fest, and blues fest goes on for like a couple weeks or something like, like that. like two weeks, yeah. yeah. or maybe even more. And anyone that was coming through Ottawa, they just were like, and that's part of Blues Fest. They just put it on the poster. And I was like, Parliament Funkadelic was there that year. Um, and like CMJs will do that as well in Toronto. Anyone who is going to be in town, they're just like, that's part of Canadian Music Week. But, you know, your wristband won't get you in. <laughs> you still have to pay for a ticket. But yeah, Metallica's playing. Yeah, because what's happening, yeah, it's the festival organizers are talking to the promoters of those and they say like we want this to be under like CMW because we don't we don't want to compete and basically we want to own this time frame in in this city. So like if you're coming to Toronto, like anything that you see that's music related should be under that umbrella. Because isn't it weird for like you know George Clinton to come into town when this massive um, music festival is happening that where people are flying in over the world all over the world. And he's not a part of it. Yeah. No, like the organizers are like, no, like we need George Clinton to be part of this. For sure. And that's why they don't they don't fold in the ticket price there either, right? They're like, if you want to see him, it's gonna cost extra because that promoters are probably already sorted out all of the contract details of that too, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm flipping through this mag, and like th- before I even uh, like. I mean, I chose this, but it wasn't for any specific reason other than like there's a big festival feature in it. But there's a lot of Canadian content in this ep- in this issue, especially for this time, 2007. 2007 was a really awesome time for Canadian and Toronto specific, really recognized throughout, I don't know, North America, the world. I see the first thing I uh, turn to 
is the contents page, and we've got a giant picture of Feist. And Feist is pretty much in a pair of underwear here. <laughs> and, yeah. um, which is it's, it's the weirdest line I've ever seen for Feist. Canada's leggiest export, which I've never seen Feist <laughs> described that way ever. And honestly, I wonder if she ever saw this and was like, what the... Yeah, you know? well, I mean, she obviously posed for this picture. Um, I can't tell if she's wearing... It's underwear, but it's very short, thin shorts, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. I think it's just, like, very cool outfit. Like, of course, they had to put a female artist in, like, some scantily clad. And talk about her clothes. legs. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but this yeah. was uh, this was Feist's big moment. This was when she had the iPod ad, man. This is when uh, 1, 2, 3, 4 was selling iPods. This was such a huge deal when the iPod was just was king. And her song was just synonymous with iPod commercials that, that moment. Yeah, I think that that's honestly like where like music licensing really blew up for Canadian music. Yeah. You know, like she that took her to a whole other level. And, you know, I don't think it's ever been the same for her since then. But, she, you know, that was, it was still a good album. So it's yeah, not yeah. like she was a, like a one hit wonder. I'm sure no. that there's a lot of other like Apple tracks that have been purchased for this kind of thing that like that they had their 15 minutes but i don't know feist feist it pretty well for like three or four albums i know she's probably a little bit less popular now but she's still pretty well respected no absolutely her music's fantastic she's actually she's really really great live i saw her open for uh uh bon Iver, oh um uh in the fall and i kind of i've seen feist like a bunch of times and I've paid to see her at Massey Hall and other venues and I always really enjoyed it but it had been like a really long time since I, I've seen Feist and I didn't really expect too much I, I kind of thought maybe she's going to phone it in she's playing an arena opening oh. for Bon Iver maybe she's going to play solo acoustic or some simple arrangement no she brought out like a seven eight piece band and she played like she was the headliner and she was amazing like I was really really impressed once again it kind of reminded me how great she was Sorry, what venue is this, Noam? Scotiabank Arena. Okay, so it was like the big arena. I mean, I, yeah. you you have to. You, if you show up with just an acoustic or whatever and just like grab a paycheck, like you might as well not even show up. You have to bring it in, in some sort of environment like that. I mean, people are really not paying attention to openers a lot of times. And like I've read so many uh, like opener stories, you know, about going on like stadium tours and just be like, we're playing when people are, you know, getting hot dogs, <laughs> just like finding their yeah. seats. So like you, but haven't you, you ever you seen have... a band that that's done that, like opening like a big show and kind of been like, this is like not really, they're not, um, they're not, they're not giving it their oh. all. I feel like they're on a tour. They don't even know what city this is. Hmm. You know, they're not using the platform effectively. I can't think of I feel anything. Like I've seen that. I can't think of anything specifically. I mean, I'm sure I've seen that, but I've also like seen the opposite of, you know, openers just blow the, 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 uh, the touring band off stage. Right. Same. What, what's one that comes to mind? Like just one, just not, not to dive, like take a tangent, but the first one that comes to mind where opener blows the headliner off the stage. I got one. I've got two that I can think of quickly. One was, I saw Mars Volta open for the Chili Peppers, and I didn't even mm-hmm. know who they were. 
I knew who at the drive-in was. I didn't even know they had a new band. They had nothing out. I'd read nothing about this. And they came on. They played. They played. It was Mars Volta and then Queens of the Stone Age and then the Chili Peppers. And we saw Mars Volta. And we're like, who the wow. fuck were wow. those guys? That was insane. <laughs> that's a sick lineup. And then the yeah, other that's, one. that's pretty awesome. The other one was the first time I saw the Black Lips. I saw them open for Be Your Own Pet at the Horseshoe in Toronto. And they were wild. I mean, if you've ever seen the Black Lips, they're one of my favorite live bands. And I was, I, I was completely, I was all in after that show. Like I don't even remember Be Your Own Pet at all. I mean, they were just a, kind of a, a one hit. <laughs> I don't know, like kind of like at the moment band. And the Black Lips really like had a solid career in the 2000s. And, oh my god, they were fantastic that night. And there was no wow, one there. There was no cool. one there to see them. So. I was uh, I was so impressed. Yeah, those black lip shows are pretty legendary here. Yeah, uh, what's yours? Um, the uh, without overthinking it, the first one that came to mind was uh, I went to go see the band Doves. Oh yeah, do you remember them? Yeah. Um, went with my sister. It was at the Cool House, uh, early two thousands, I believe, and this band that I didn't really know. Like I kind of up a little bit before we uh, we got there. Um, came on they were called uh my morning jacket oh. and like they honestly they blew my whole like face off wow they were so good i honestly wasn't with i stuck my sister i was like i could leave right now like this is they were unreal oh man um dubs were fine but honestly <laughs> like this the show had already peaked right there so i have a quick my morning jacket story is that i uh I, was, I had just moved to Toronto in 2003. My friend came into town one night from Hamilton, I think, just to hang out. And we were going to go to the new music night at the Horseshoe. And we showed up, and new music night is free. We showed up, and there was a band booked. And we're like, oh, forget it. And and it wasn't even that much. It was like 15 bucks. And we're like, nah, forget it. We won't do it. So we just kind of walked around, and we tried to find something else to do. And there was nothing else to do. <laughs> so we're like okay let's just go back and see what's going on and we went back and then we skipped the line we just ran in like by the ticket by the ticket taker i think she just turned her head for one second we just darted in and it was my morning jacket at the at the horseshoe nice. <laughs> and i That's the exact cool. same thing man i was completely blown away i think i bought everything they had at that merch table like two or three albums i was like yeah all of them i want these guys yeah yeah, on, and you know what happened with these guys with My Morning Jacket is that after that album, they were so good, two members quit mm. or got, were thrown out of the band or something like that. And then, like, Jim James is a super talented guy, and I've seen them since then. But they were they were more of a rock band um, for the first couple records, I think, like a little bit more. Like, yeah. it still had that My Morning Jacket kind of flavor, but it, it definitely went into stranger more interesting places after that mm -hmm. yeah but i think that those two players um like you know added a lot of uh, a different kind of personality to the band back then so after those two guys left i, I honestly was like ah the, you know it's probably not the same i stuck but with they them. are still great yeah i stuck with them i remember there was that the record i really liked it still moves and then mm -hmm. after that i think it was the record after that was called z and that took yeah. a real weird turn. It was not a My Morning Jacket record, but I was into it. I was like, no, because I still liked that music that they put out. 
but it wasn't what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So anyway, to digress. That, yeah. Yeah. That, that was that, a huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we come to this big kind of folded page in the middle of the mag and it's, and it's all the, uh, the festival guide for this year, for this summer. Bonnaroo, Coachella, Sasquatch, Virgin Fest, Lollapalooza, Jazz Fest, Live Earth, Austin City Limits, OzFest, Warp Tour, and Rock the Bells. That's kind of like the holy pack of, of 2000s festivals. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I wanted to go to this Coachella. I was planning to go to Coachella like in between these two gigs and then I got this job and I couldn't go because I had to start work. Um, and I was really, really planning on going to this because it was the rage against the machine reunion. And that's why I wanted to go like 100%. I was even maybe planning on, I don't even know if I was going to go at all of the days because it was going to be like a huge trip for me, but I really wanted to see rage because they, I had never seen them before. I didn't get to see in the 90s. I had tickets for the 2000 Beastie Boys Rage Tour. And then Mike D broke his collarbone and they postponed the festival, the tour. And then Rage broke up. And then we all got a refund. So I never saw them. So then I was like, I'll go to the 2007 reunion. Like, that was a huge deal. I would have definitely seen them then. And I didn't go. And then they reunite this year. And... I've already sort of mentioned this to you. Like, you got tickets for the reunion this year. I didn't, and I was really on the fence. And when I went on to get the tickets, they were super expensive, and I just couldn't justify it because, not because they were so expensive, but that I, because I was already on the fence, because I didn't know if I could see Rage Against the Machine for the first time uh, in a 2020 reunion tour when these guys are all in their 50s. I have a real, I have a, I have a tough time with reunions as it is not for like any moral reason or anything. It's just like, I feel a lot of times I don't want to see the band if I didn't see them in their prime. And when they were like, actually like, you know, like youth and energy and everything about them, like when they were in their moment and when they reunite 20 years later and I might end up just like sitting and with a bunch of other people who are sitting <laughs> like it's not like up at like you know up at the front and the the energy i just don't think i can do it so sorry that was a bit of a rant but like i i just <laughs> i wish i had seen them in the 2007 i could have seen them at that moment and now i'm i'm just not gonna see raging at this machine not to rub salt in the wound i <laughs> i saw them in the 90s okay um i saw them at maple leaf gardens wow um for uh uh the evil empire tour wow um they were insane they were amazing but that was also an arena you know what i mean um were you on the floor uh no i i was in i was in like not the nosebleeds by any means but like the whatever the 100 level is there yeah yeah i can't remember how that was laid out but um it was it was awesome like it was amazing and then the i think they came back two years later for the battle of los angeles i think yeah and they played maple leaf gardens again but i was away so my friends went to that one as well and i think that they they mixed in like battle of los angeles tunes but for my show what they did is that they played 
one song from the first album, one song from the second album. They just kept alternating back and forth between the two albums, mm-hmm. and they were on fire. Like they were like you could like blow the roof off the place. I have a feeling that with this this tour, um, I don't think that these guys are going to have any lack of energy by any means. I think that Tim and all those guys—they're all pretty young still, you know. Like they're youthful people. Sure. They're not like yeah, they're all in good you know, shape. Yeah, they're all in good shape. They're all, they all have like, you know, I can't, Zach, I can't, honestly, I can't see Zach doing it unless he had like the same energy and same fire that he has because that's just not him to kind of phone it in. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I had tickets for um, their show in Buffalo because I was away during the, the Toronto dates. Yeah. Which I was actually even more excited about because one, it's a road trip, two, it's, buffalo so i think the odd uh, the crowd's gonna be like wildly different yeah I think so. and i was able to get floor tickets as well so it's oh, ga4 wow. okay. so i think it, it's it is going to be insane whenever it happens honestly i think it's going to be postponed or canceled yeah. at this rate yeah who knows anyway what's happening at this point, but... they already canceled the first leg of the tour yeah. um and run the jewels are opening so it's yeah. kind of like a no-brainer yeah yeah you're right and i also look at the ticket price and I'm kind of getting used to like the the price of shows to a certain degree. Like A level artists for the last few years have been able to charge a lot more for tickets because essentially the promoters have smartened up and they're cutting out the margin that the uh, the scalpers were making. So you know Live Nation, Ticketmaster, all the different promoters are are essentially like just trying to you know if you if Drake is coming and the ticket price was 150 bucks and people are willing to pay 500 bucks for it, they're charging 500 bucks for the ticket now yeah. instead, right? So with Rage, I think with this tour, Tom Morello, before they went on sales, like prices are going to be reasonable. Um, and they are expensive tickets um, because it's really hard to look at a ticket and be like, oh, it's 150 or $190 for a ticket. But they're not doing the same thing that a lot of the other tours are doing where it's like, say all the seats in the floor 100 level are 150 or 200 dollars, but then the first five rows are like a thousand dollars each or something like yeah. that you know that crazy stuff and they did do some dynamic pricing with some tickets where randomly selected seats that were good seats were a lot more expensive but the difference between the base ticket price and what it was like kind of raised to is going to a charity that rage uh selected yeah yeah so it's 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 quite different than yeah um a lot of these other tours it is still expensive but ticket prices are just expensive now it and it sucks no one likes paying that that much money but they still sell out <laughs> yeah. like literally every show like every artist is selling out their tours and people are rabid and they're still there's still scalpers making money even on top of these raised ticket prices. So I don't know. People are willing to pay for it, right? Do you think that if there was some sort of like strike or revolution in ticket buyers where we just said, okay, we're not buying anything. We're just, if you're going to charge us this, then we're just not going to shows. And if you had some sort of online campaign saying, okay, everybody just stop buying tickets. Like don't go to this tour. Everybody stop buying tickets this month. Do you think there would be a big change? Do you think they would listen and go, okay, we have to get this down to a reasonable amount? Because in like 15 years, the amount 
the ticket amount, like his, like the ticket prices have just skyrocketed. Like, and it, and it, and you just justified it. I know exactly why it's happening. And like, yeah, if like people are gonna are willing to pay five hundred, then they're gonna charge five hundred. But how can you do that? Like, how can I? How am I ever gonna bring my kid to a show to some pop show that they want to see in fifteen years? And it's going to be like $300. <laughs> like it used to be. Oh, you're fi- going to, you're going to wish it was $300. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going, I'm not going to do it. But I mean, if, when I was, I mean, not that long ago, like 10 years ago that you could go to that show for, for like 60 bucks. And now it's yeah, just, well, look it's at just these like prices. hundreds there's of prices dollars in here with this festival section. Like there's um, single day tickets for some of these festivals was like $35. Yeah. Coachella was 85 bucks a day. Right. So and you could go see like, you could I go see Rage Against the Machine. Weekend, it's like eight hundred dollars or something. I don't even. Yeah. I you checked, can see so. everything. Sasquatch ticket price fifty five. The Beastie Boys were headlining. <laughs> it was fifty five bucks to go see them, and then an yeah, entire it's other day. Thirteen years ago. Yeah. It's not. It's not that long ago. I know. But you know, one thing that all one another another thing that's changed is um, production value has changed drastically mm-hmm. as well. Like everyone essentially is having like pink floyd roger waters level yeah production not everyone a lot of artists and a lot of the artists that are commanding those like premium ticket prices mm-hmm. are like putting a lot more work into the production value and i'm not saying that i think if people had a choice they'd be like eh, if i could save 100 bucks and you could scale it back i'd rather do that because it's still yeah. like a lot of money but that's that's another way that they're trying to justify it I think I saw Pearl Jam one time, and they're, they're a different thing. Like everybody always shows up for their show, but when I saw them in two thousand six, I swear there wasn't one thing on stage. Maybe no, there was they, a screen. They don't spend money on drugs. <laughs> like I don't think there was anything. But they also they also have um, they cap their ticket prices at one hundred and twenty dollars for like every literal literally every single seat in the arena is one hundred and twenty dollars plus fees. So it's one hundred and fifty five dollars to see them whether you are on the first row or the very last row okay so they're they're like different because they're the ones that actually like fought Ticketmaster. yeah that's true went to court and everything so they they're they're not ones that they're you know there's like a lot of glitz or production value they come they play literally a different set every night Uh people follow them around the world they go on tour people will be like i'm going to every single show they're like you know fish or uh-huh. Grateful Dead to, to some fans now, right? Right. Honestly, I've seen so many bands that like I saw you two once, and I was so annoyed. They, they play the <laughs> same. You saw honestly, you I'll never see you two again. Um, they play. They f- play fine. They, they it's good, but they play the exact same set list every single night of the tour. Uh, they might change one song, and then Bono was like reading all the lyrics and even the in-between song banter off a teleprompter. No. I was like, yeah, for real. What? And, oh, that's yeah. so disgusting. I know. I was, I was, it's the only time I saw them. I paid, I remember this cause I was really annoyed. I paid $112 to see them. And this was like a really long time. This is probably early two thousands or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really early two thousands. And I got like, we, it's me and three friends and we were like behind the stage, you know, when they have like those, like 360, Those 360 or... things right yeah so it was like them i think dashboard confessional opened or something wow um and it was just annoying i couldn't even believe it 
I was just like, okay, well, this is literally the most expensive ticket I've ever bought, and I'm severely annoyed at this, like, totally inauthentic oh, yeah. display. I, I can't, I, I can't even get into you two. Like, I hate them. So. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> but I got, I got a, uh, I got a free ticket for them once at the place I was working at, and I went, I just went down to the arena and sold it and scalped and sold it to a scalper <laughs> and went drinking <laughs> i was like it was free and i wasn't going <laughs> there's not yeah, very I many really bands. picture you at a u2 show no. unless it was like 1979 or something yeah I, I and i've always said i'd see anyone for free if someone gave me a free ticket to britney spears i'd go i'd go check out that show i was like yeah, sure i'll too. see i'll see what that is u2 i was like nope I'll go sell that ticket and get drunk. <laughs> That's how yeah. much I respect them. <laughs> I had yeah. no well, you interest know, I, in being I think part they of have that. an era where I really liked their music. I haven't really listened to a lot of it lately, but they do. I do think that they do have some some really good songs and a couple albums that stand out. But um, they had an era, and then the past, and then I don't know. They still write hits, but it just uh -huh. doesn't really interest me. Yeah, I just think they've written the same song for like thirty years. <laughs> it just keeps going. It's one long song. Okay. We digressed a lot there, but I want to get back to Rage Against the Machine because I have a question for you. Can you can you see this band not at a festival? I feel like they are just a festival band. Like you have to see them on your feet at a festival. It just seems like that's the place to get the maximum experience for Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, but this this tour that was supposed to, that is happening coming up is their own tour, right? So yeah. they're not cashing in on the festival circuit this year. They're they're doing their own thing, right? Because I think there's a lot more money if you just do festivals. Really, do you think just doing festivals? I mean, how many festivals can you do? I mean, unless you play them all over the world for the rest of the summer. But do you think there's more money in that than doing like a full reunion tour and? as a band like rage against the machine, like they must be getting uh, like a, a one or 2 million guarantee every show. Right. Um, well they don't, you don't really make guarantees when you do your own tour. I mean, GNR did when they, you reunited. make, you make a festival. Well, it's, it's complicated, but it's like, it's based on ticket price. So they know that they're going to make X number of dollars. So just say it's like zero versus 90%. Um, but they're guaranteed like the first million or something like that. Right. You know, over and above a million dollars. So like for like Rage Against the Machine, if they went and did like 20 or 30 festivals over the course of the summer, then they get flown into the festival, their accommodations, their flights, all the production is not their problem. None of it. Yeah. So they basically just get paid handsomely for being there and it's usually over and above what they would make for a normal show. Right. And they don't have to worry about any of the, any of the other costs or any of the risk or anything like that. Right. Um, but if you do your own tour, then you have to pay for all your buses, all your production, right. everything that comes, just say your show in Toronto, they just say they played one show and it grosses like $1.5 million. I don't even know. Just say it's a million dollars or something like that. Right. Based on a really high ticket price. Like you have to remove the money that the promoter's making, all their production costs. Right. Then you have to back out all of your tour costs as well from it. So yeah. 
you're, it's festivals are really a cash cow for for any band that can that can do it. That's why Outkast did it. They didn't go on their own tour. It kind of seems like the best career move to just quit at the top of your game, and then hopefully you get to reunite for like a huge payday at a festival. That seems like the the smart the smart play these days. Everybody, there's always totally. got to be a reunion at a festival every year, especially Coachella. That's their mo. They have totally. to reunite someone every time. So even in 2007, yeah, for Rage to reunite, I wonder what they got to reunite for that one show. Right. They played maybe I'm, two I or three know. festivals that that summer. I think they played Rock the Bells. Played Coachella, maybe two. Like, do you think they? Do you think they got a million or two million dollars just to show up to one of those festivals? Probably, probably. Yeah. But you know, I think that it, it's it, in the last like ten or fifteen years, it's just really blown up with people with bands just doing the reuniting thing. Like even bands like Death from Above. Death yeah. from Above was a great band. They could probably sell at like a mid-sized venue. They went away for a bunch of years. They came back and they can play like multiple nights at like Rebel. They can sell like yeah. 6,000 or 8,000 tickets as opposed to selling like 1,500 tickets. You know, the legend of these bands just has grown. Like even like the Constantines. Constantines literally couldn't play a venue bigger than a 500 cap or something like that. Right. But when they, when they broke up, when they came back, they're playing Massey Hall. You right. know, they're playing Field Trip Festival and they're probably making way more money even pavement pavement played festivals and stuff but their own right. shows like they weren't playing like massive no they were playing like, they games. were playing lee's palace by like 1999 exactly like with these a lot of these bands like the legend just grows and i think sharing music and discovering music is way easier than it was ever be- than ever before um so it's it's definitely like a a smart career move if you are a great band that is getting traction like i don't really know of a lot of bands that have done it that it totally flopped like i i guess everyone's doing their homework before they they go out and do it right yeah obviously i mean to for death from above like i never found out what happened with those guys i know that they did um they did their first record it was really huge and i know they were struggling to do a sophomore record because it's just tough to do that record as a band you have to follow up a really big debut with something awesome they didn't know what to do and then somewhere in there those guys decided they hated each other there was some falling out they hated each other they broke up the band they said they'd never play again and then I don't know. When was that reunion? It was maybe 10 years later or something like that. A little less. Yeah. And I think something like I that. heard they got like half a million dollars to show up to Coachella and play. It's the exact same thing. Like they hate each other. And then over the years, I guess their hate for each other kind of wore off a little bit. Yeah. Just like um, like in, the, in the magazine, like it mentioned, Tom Morello talks about like Tim and uh, Zach kind of yeah. starting to talk to each other again. And yeah. I didn't honestly, I didn't even realize that that's where there was even any tension or feuding yeah like i just thought like zach was like i'm i'm done with this you know i didn't know that there was like some tension in the band but i guess that's it and they like started talking to each other and started surfing together or something and then they were like hey yeah why don't we do a couple shows and they will make like three million million dollars over the course of you know these four shows or whatever i'm just making up numbers but sure sure but you're probably right pretty attractive right okay noyan last uh, but not least What's number one in the charts? Who do you think is number one in the charts? 
no, May 2007. This is the week ending May 12th. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. Honestly, like these charts confuse the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> this is a pretty good portrait of 2007. I, I just want to run through like the top 20. Top 20, number 20 is Gwen Stefani, The Sweet Escape. So that was with her song with Akon. So big recognizable song, obviously. Um, Alison Krauss was number, number 19. This is a collection, 100 Miles or More, a collection. She's a country artist. I didn't know who the hell she was. Uh, 18, Nickelback, All the Right Reasons. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Nickelback, they're on the charts. Uh, always on the charts yeah they're always on the charts then 17 uh justin timberlake future sex love sounds is a big one that's a good record uh then uh 16 is joss stone introducing joss stone that title really confuses me because that wasn't her first record and i actually saw joss stone <laughs> probably around like 2003 2004 <laughs> and i was like Wait, I was questioning. When did I see her? Is this the first record? And I had to look it up. I was like, why did you name like your second or third record introducing just? She was reborn, reimagined. <laughs> uh, number 15, Beyonce, B-Day. I will say, how could you possibly have a Billboard list without Beyonce? I don't think it's possible anymore. Or Nickelback. Uh, <laughs> number 14, Timbaland. Timbaland presents Shock Value. 13, The Evolution of Robin Thicke. <laughs> and this wow. guy, this looks like Bruce Willis's uh, cover photo. Like, <laughs> <laughs> From like, The Return of Bruno? Yeah. <laughs> why I think is, I have that cassette tape, eh? Why is Robin Thicke in like a, a white tank top? Oh, this is a horrible picture. I had no idea who he was at this point. He didn't get big until later. Uh, I didn't even know he was making music back then. Yeah, me either. Another nice portrait of 2007. Fergie's uh, solo record, The Duchess. That was big, wasn't it? Yeah, sure it was. I mean, Black Eyed Peas were huge. Then, of course, she got to do her little solo record. She had probably a couple of those. Uh, Number 11, back to black, Amy Winehouse. So cool. yeah, she was she was on the chart. She was number eleven. Like we were talking about her before. I mean, I never thought that she like played that big a venue, but she won Grammys and she was on the charts. Like she was doing incredibly well. She she was on her way up. She didn't get there, but she was on her way up. Right. I mean, she like yeah. she would have she would have been massive. Yeah. It's too bad about her. We can't get into her now, but yeah, after you watch that documentary, like that was heartbreaking. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. It was. It was a real Kurt Cobain kind of story. It was a person who never thought they were going to be as big as they were and then were and then just got like destroyed by paparazzi and media and they wouldn't leave her alone. It was, it made no, yeah, it made no sense. Yeah. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, number 10, Tim McGraw, let it go. Getting into the, that's a good one. That's a good one. We're getting into the country music now. We're getting (laughs) into the old chart toppers that I don't know because they're country artists. Number nine, waking up laughing, Martina McBride. Number eight, Some Hearts by Carrie Underwood. It's wonderful. And now another good portrait. Uh, favorite Worst Nightmare, Arctic Monkeys. They were big. That was another V-Fest yeah. band. That was uh, yeah. Arctic Monkeys that afternoon. And I remember yeah, they, it was played, just... they played daytime, yeah. 
blasting. Yeah. Like that every time you were on that island, they set up that stage. Um, I mean, it's hard to escape the sun wherever you are, but it always was facing west. So for the entire day, it was just sun melting the artists in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And I remember like being at that show, and I was hot. And just thinking, like, these guys are just completely exposed on stage, just, like, sun just beating down on them as they're playing. You just on have a to, dry ice. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to, like, grin and take it. Uh, yeah. Number six, Convicted by Akon. He was big for one record. Yeah, he yeah. He did a, a song with um, Cardinal Fischel, too, that, That's like, true. kind of put Cardi back on the map for a little while. That's right. It was a song of the summer. Honestly, I've heard I, – I worked at the booking agency when – when that came out and we booked uh cardi and i can't remember the name of the song now but it's in my dna number five. <laughs> you know i don't have to i, I can't pretend <laughs> you know what i'm talking about um number five daughtry and his album is called daughtry really put a lot of thought that's a that. good good title this guy is so fucking boring introducing daughtry oh my god just a, what was he like a runner-up or did he win american idol or was he just a runner-up i can't remember he was on american idol this guy is just i remember reading an article about like what happened to rock stars just look at this guy it was just jeans and a coat he just looks like i don't know he, he yeah here's like he just looks like a bartender <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Um, and of course, what Billboard chart would be complete without now 24 various artists at number four? Yeah, always, always on the charts. We've never done one of these with without now. It's on every one. Yeah. It's in the top and that's five. That's why there's a everyone. That's why there's a now 24. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised they brought is... one out every four months. Oh, it's so so brilliant. Here's something that surprised me. Number three is Year Zero by Nine Inch Nails, 2007. It was really good for them. I didn't think they were that big on charts, like selling that many records at this point. Yeah, I'm a bit surprised too. What what album of theirs was before that? That was with Teeth, and that had the single off of it that was on the radio a lot. Right. So it kind of, I think like I don't think Year Zero did as well critically, but with Teeth, I think did well. Yeah, so maybe this was like the follow-up, so everybody was kind of yeah. back on the radar exactly. of Nine Inch Nails and picked this up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would have seen them right around, maybe like 2000. No, I would have seen them for the With Teeth tour. I saw them at the amphitheater. I was on a lawn. Like, I was nowhere near them, and that show blew my mind. Oh, yeah. They were incredible. Before. I saw them on their last tour. I've seen them like maybe three or four times, and they're always incredible. Like, the last time was that tour that they did with Soundgarden a couple years ago. Right which the first outdoor show I ever went to was Nine Inch Nails with Soundgarden in like 1995. Wow. Yeah, it was a co-headline tour. Um, and it was like the opening bands were Marilyn Manson, Reverend Horton Heat, and a couple other bands. It was insane. I oh got like God. trampled in the mosh pit during Soundgarden. Holy <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, they came back a few years ago and they did, you know, another like Nine Snails Soundgarden tour. Um, Soundgarden was really great and Nine Snails production and their set was just insane. It was one of the best shows I saw that year. Yeah, like I couldn't believe how how well done this show was. And 
like not to take anything away from it, but this was the one thing I, I really remember that was really funny about that show. Now they were playing like maniacs. Like this was like amazing, like, like nineties energy, like of this band, like just like they're jumping up and down on their keyboards. Like they just went fucking nuts. So much energy put into the show. But there was one thing I noticed was that Trent comes out and he's, he's, he's pretty fashionable these days. You know, like he's got, he's, he's got his little look and he's got a white t-shirt on and a leather jacket and he comes out and he does a few songs and I was noticing this going like, how long is he going to keep his jacket on for? Like, it's got to be hot up there. I know he's shown up and he wants to wear his jacket on stage to look. He's going to pull a Ramones. Yeah. It's like, he's going to, <laughs> he's going to have to take this off. And then about the third song, he does. He takes it off. And I go, oh, okay. And I'm thinking this in my mind going like, okay, this makes sense. He finally took that freaking leather jacket off. It's summer out. He takes it off. And then someone comes out and brings him a fresh leather jacket. And he puts on a fresh one. <laughs> He's like, this one's too sweaty. Yeah. Give me another one. He put on a second leather jacket that someone That's was amazing. holding for him that was Febreze. <laughs> Febreze. <laughs> <laughs> Nine Inch Nails tour sponsored by Febreze. <laughs> it would have to be. Yeah. Uh, number two is Ain't Nothing Ain't Nothing Like Me. The artist is Joe. I looked up Joe. I, I, I don't remember him, but he was doing yeah, well. This was a debut. He debuted at number two. So he had a big R&B hit that was popular with R&B fans that I wasn't familiar with, but he did well. Yeah. Uh, and number one. I did not expect this either. For two thousand, I guess two thousand seven. This makes sense because she would have debuted two thousand one. She would have still been up there. But number one is the best damn thing by Avril Lavigne, and this was the the song "Girlfriend." I don't like your girlfriend. Think you need oh, a new that one. was a. I guess that was kind of a, a big single, right? Sure, but yeah, good for Avril. She did well. Was that, Coming was from that the follow-up to Let It Go? Or no, Let Go? she must have had something in between there. I didn't look it up, but that would have been seven years or six years between records. There's no way. She must have had something else. She probably had another record, but I feel like the, the one after her debut record also did well. Let's look it up. Like, she was on she was on a bit of a streak. There's no way. Like, I mean, she was a huge pop commodity there there was no way they were gonna this isn't radiohead they can't they can't wait six years no for she probably put out a record every two and a half years for right? sure and that's it Avril levine tops the charts we always end this podcast Canadian, at least yeah i know I'm, I'm you know her and uh nico back are both in the top 20 so it's really great news for canadians and this is before <laughs> chad and avril found found each other oh my god that's right they were, you know, they were together on the Billboard charts, but had not found together, togetherness in life yet. No, Anne. Not yet. Not it was yet. the match made that we all were so, so pleased with as Canadians. <laughs> Where are you going with this? <laughs> I'm not going anywhere with it. It doesn't even deserve to be acknowledged. <laughs> but yeah. it, but it happened, and we're all disgusted by it. Yeah. Just like two people who just like married themselves um okay anyways <laughs> so that's the end <laughs> thanks a lot for uh doing this on skype no yeah, this was our first test to see if we could do a social distancing uh podcast and i think it worked out pretty well yeah yeah it was great thanks for uh 
thanks for having me and uh stay safe and healthy and isolated yeah you from too others <laughs> everybody stay in your basement like i'm doing and uh just edit podcasts <laughs> perfect <laughs> all right goodbye everyone all right all right thanks